This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is burning questions, not people. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. DiStefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound, we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. Spring is basically a second holiday season. Mother's Day, Father's Day, weddings, the list goes on. And what better way to celebrate them than with Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly is the easiest way to shop local stores and compare prices on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered to your door. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hey, what's up, friends? How are you? So good to be back with you. I'm, I'm laughing because I, I just finished the interview for, that I'm doing that I did for this intro. I hope that made sense. I, I'm making an intro now for an interview I just did. There we go. Um, on this episode, I have uh, Thomas J. Ord on the podcast. He is an open and relational theologian. I'm just going to tell you right now. Um, he is going to challenge a lot of the evangelical and even classical Christian notions of God in this episode. And I think it's thought provoking. And I hope, um, I hope you listen closely. I I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I, I say this in the interview, but I really am attracted to the open and relational model of thinking about God and, and, and human responsibility. And I think this episode hopefully will explain that. I'm not saying you have to uh, believe it or, or, or somehow, you know, fall in this room of the Christian tradition, but, but join me on this episode exploring it. I think that's important. And again, a sincere thank you to Tom for coming on and making time. He's Honestly, he won't say this, but he's pretty legendary in these spaces. And for him to come on the podcast is a huge deal. So I hope you enjoy this episode um, talking about open and relational theology from one of the main proponents of it, Thomas J. Ord. That being said, I do want to thank you for listening to the show or watching the show. Um, We are working 
to get this stuff on YouTube more and more. So I'm I'm trying to build out a better a better flow for video content. We're actually going to be building, not building, but I'm going to be moving my studio downstairs into our guest room and, and just doing a different kind of background, a different kind of vibe. So we're working on that because I think the future for this podcast, it's it's growing audibly. It's growing on, on Apple and on Spotify, which is amazing. But I think the YouTube segment is a whole different kind of listener base. And we're hoping to kind of do more of that work. So look forward to that on YouTube soon. And if you want to support the show, we are a nonprofit organization doing a lot of work, including this podcast. You can donate. We are, like I said, nonprofits. So any donations in the U.S. are tax deductible, or you can rate and you can review the podcast. You can share it with some friends. There are a lot of ways to help get the word out that for people who grew up in the basement of evangelical fundamentalism, they can find better paths forwards in the Christian tradition. All right, friends, that's it for now. Enjoy my interview with Thomas J. Ord. Talk to you all later on. Well, um, this has been a, uh, a conversation that's been a long time in the making, and I, I need to be public about this. I have to hold myself accountable. So, uh, Tom, you reached out to me a while ago, and it kind of fell through the cracks. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll get to it. And then I went to beer camp with with you. I know you were there. Trip Fuller was there. And I was talking to Trip or Josh Patterson, and someone was like, oh, you know, Tom is here. I'm like, oh, that name sounds so familiar. And they're like, wait, have you talked to him? And I'm like, you know, I think he might have emailed me. And they go, wait, he emailed you and you didn't reach out. You didn't reach out to him to get get you to get him on the podcast uh. immediately. And I'm like, no, but you know, I'll make it right. So here we are. We're having the conversation. So Dr. Uh. Thomas J. Ord, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for making time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to this, Tim. <laughs> Absolutely. Before we get into some of the good stuff, I like asking all of my guests to kind of give me some background. I mean, how did did you grow up in in evangelical spaces? And you're obviously an author. I know that you teach. How did you get into the line of work that you do now based on how you grew up? I grew up in a little farming community in eastern Washington state. My father came from the Dutch Reformed Calvinist tradition, and my mother was a holiness Pentecostal girl. They got married in part because my dad was an excellent basketball player and played for all kinds of churches, and uh, they met. Uh, we moved to this small town, and the Church of the Nazarene was the hub of our family life. My parents served on the church board for more than 40 years. My mother was an associate pastor. Uh, I went to church, you know, four or five times a week, literally, and gave my heart to Jesus many times as a kid. So um, insofar as Nazarenes are evangelicals, which a lot of people would put them as an evangelical movement, uh, I was an evangelical uh, growing up, and I'm still an ordained elder in the Church of Nazarene. So uh, in that sense, I'm still an evangelical. Okay. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, things kind of, uh, well... I'll put it this way. I I took Christianity, my faith, God, the Bible seriously as a young person and still do today. But as a younger person, that meant for me, you know, being a witness, telling my friends about Jesus, inviting them to church, going to church camp, being in Christian rock and roll bands. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I went to a Christian college, and I was a street evangelist for much of my time in college. 
And then my senior year, I took a course in philosophy of religion. And for the first time, really took carefully or listened carefully, maybe I, I should say it, uh, to atheists, agnostics, people from other religious traditions. And in reading the material for that class, I realized the grounds for my belief in God weren't nearly as strong as I thought they were. And um, well, there were all kinds of questions that I had, and these people were asking them. Um, I remember coming to pick up my fiance, who's now my wife, her getting into the car and me turning to her and saying, I can't believe in God anymore. Um, I was an atheist or agnostic for a short period of time because I kept at the quest to try to make sense of life and God. And eventually I came to think it was more plausible than not that God exists. And that plausibility rested primarily on two ideas. One, uh, this search for meaning. I, I, I wanted there to be ultimate meaning. And I didn't think I could have it if there wasn't a ground of meaning that most people call God. And secondly, I had these deep intuitions that I ought to be a loving person and that in some sense, love was the answer. <laughs> and I couldn't make good sense of those intuitions if there wasn't something like an ultimate lover, who again, most people call God. So I left uh, college with that kind of thin faith, <laughs> became a youth pastor, was a youth pastor for 10 years while I did my graduate studies and PhD work. And now I um, teach, I direct a doctoral program in theology at Northwind Theological Seminary. So there's a long slash short version. Well, it's important because I know for a fact there are people that I'm thinking of, including myself, uh, who who hear a lot of our own journey in your in your story. Um, you know, I mean, I I'm I'm still to this day a professional drummer. I grew up playing music in the church. Always had that rebel spirit, and you know, yeah. we we definitely deal in that. You know, the term is the the this deconstruction space. I'm not a fan of the word necessarily, but I understand it. And you know, we keep trying to tell people, especially some of our our more vocal critics, that listen. We're doing this because we take our faith more seriously. I don't want to leave my yeah. my faith, you know. I I'm just more convinced that, that 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 there are better ways of thinking about these things than the answers I was given um, in my yeah. more um, I guess conservative evangelical tradition. And so I think a lot of people listening to your story are like, okay, yeah, I track with this, and it's, it's really helpful to know that I'm not alone. You know, having these moments, right? Where, where, yeah, you go to act, you go to college, and you go, wait a second. You know, these apologetics I was given are just not sufficient for some of these questions. And what do I do with that, right? And I think that's a very fair place to be. Uh, just today, I was on Facebook, and somebody posted something to the effect of atheists are people who don't take uh, was it reason or light or something like that seriously. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, that doesn't that doesn't describe most the atheists I know, and no. it doesn't describe me when I was an atheist. Right. I truly did want to find the truth. I I wasn't, you know, just like sowing my wild oats to sleep around or something like that or you know, some people walk away from faith because of religious trauma or abuse by people in power. That wasn't the case for me. You know, uh, I really, it was an intellectual struggle that led me to deconstruct and be an atheist for a while. 
Well, I have to ask just while we're on this topic, then we'll move on into some of your more current work. Uh, when, when you were in that that mode for a while, what was what was your your church community? What was the response as you were kind of maybe going through this time in your life, and even at one point identifying as an atheist? Well, at that time, I wasn't going to tell anybody. <laughs> I mean, I told very few people of where I was at. You know, my fiance, as I mentioned. Uh, you know, I was way too afraid of what would happen if my professors or my pastor knew or my parents. I think that's the way a lot of people are who are deconstructing. Uh, yeah. You know, at least initially, you are afraid that people are going to think less of you or, uh, you know, most people I know have been told that the really mature people, they have no doubts you know, doubt is the is the pathway to sin. I was told. Yes. And here I'm having tons of doubts, and so I don't want to tell people that because they'll think I'm just sinning. You know. So yeah, I kept it pretty much to myself. Do you find? And I, you know, I I, I want to tread carefully here with 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 not demonizing entire people groups. That's not what we're trying to do. But do you find as you're so kind of far removed from maybe some of those spaces as as where you used to be? Because I, I certainly see this. Like the more I hear these. I, we can call them arguments and those kinds of comments from people on Facebook or even some faith leaders I follow. I'm just like, wow, I, I just don't know if they're really taking this stuff as seriously as they think they are, but they're convinced that like, uh, dare I say, these straw man positions are the positions that they're arguing against, but they're just, they're very, they come across to me as, as um like a pseudo intellectualism, right? Of like they, some yeah. people present as super intellectual, but like, you know, I don't think like you're really thinking about this stuff or at least taking it seriously on its own merits. Do you see that as well? Or is it just maybe kind of me? Yeah. You know, I, I find two types of people, one type of person I think has good motives. Yeah. They look at what's going on, they read scripture, and they just think it should be dead level obvious to everybody that there is a God. And, you know, and to them, I just say, you know, someday your you your horizons might expand <laughs> and and you might all of a sudden realize there are some good reasons to doubt God's existence. But mm. most of them I think do have good motives. They just can't see outside of where they are at present. Yeah. There's another group of people who I don't know about their motives. I think they're more motivated by fear and lack of security. And uh, for many people, the deconstructive move begins with realizing they can't be certain of what they thought they knew for sure. And so this, these doubts and this lack of certainty moves them to a space in which they begin asking the tough questions. Well, some people just don't want the uncomfortable space that uncertainty provides. And so I think in some cases, people just cling harder or cling more strongly to uh, what they think they can be certain of when really deep down, they're not very certain. Yeah, I think that's good. So where does your, if you had to kind of give yourself some titles here, where, where does your theology, your, your Christianity, is there a thesis for like the kind of framework you're operating within? Like, you know, you mentioned that, that your dad was Dutch reformed, right? Is there a term that, that you use to kind of describe yourself and your theological bent at, at this point in your life? Yeah, I'm an open and relational theologian. That means 
that I think there actually is a God who exists, that this God moves through time moment by moment, does not predestine or predetermine anything. In fact, that can't even know with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen in the future because there is no future yet to be known. And this God is both giving and receiving. This God is the lover of the universe who not only provides what's good, but empathizes, shows compassion, listens, and engages in giving and receiving love. How's that for a thumbnail? <laughs> uh, let me tell you. Um, you just I, 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 I picture a lot of cars halting as we're listening to this. Like, wait, I'm sorry. Did he just say that God doesn't know the future for sure? That God hasn't predestined the future? What kind of weak, puny God is this guy believing? And Tim, what the hell are you doing getting Tom on the podcast? Yeah, yeah this what, is supposed <laughs> to be the new evangelicals, dog. Come on. Yeah. I want to be more certain, Tom, of the future, not less certain. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. You know, you say that my my doctoral dissertation yeah. was an explanation of these views, and I called it a process evangelical theology of love. Hmm. So I it, I do think there's something about the evangelical spirit and appreciation for scripture that I hang on to. Yeah. But I actually think the view that I just expressed, while <laughs> while it's going to sound weird to a lot of people really meshes well with the majority themes of the Bible. Okay, why don't we start there? Because let's face it, right? I mean, I was, um, it's ingrained still to this day, you know, that, okay, what's the Bible say though about this? Because that in a lot of senses for people is still authoritative or we're trying to make sense of it, right? So for you, you maybe some high level themes here. I know there's a lot to it, but but what are some of the themes that you see in the Bible that match up with this God who who, is not omnipotent or sovereign or in control? I mean, help me understand that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let me start with something that I'm going to guess a lot of people will agree with me about. Okay. I think God portrayed in the Bible is really affected by what we do. Hmm. God's happy and proud when we care for each other. God's not happy, not proud when we hurt one another. It's really hard to read the Bible and believe that God is totally unaffected, unmoved, has no emotions, even though that's the classic Christian tradition or that you find in Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, etc. So in that sense, my theology is far more biblical than what we usually call classical theism. Hmm. The more difficult ones are the ones about God's power. Yeah. Because most people have read the Bible as saying God is in control, God is sovereign, God is omnipotent, God is, you know, somehow can be in control, even though some people will still say there's creaturely freedom, but in some mysterious way, God is in control. Well, I'm thinking about how, uh, you know, one example of this would be Pharaoh, right? God hardened Pharaoh's heart to do something is maybe an example we can use here. Yeah, exactly. Great example, because the scriptures also say hardened Pharaoh, I mean, hardened, Pharaoh <laughs> hardened his own heart. <laughs> uh, so it has both God as the cause of the hardening and Pharaoh himself. Mm. And what we've done, and here we have our tradition to blame for this, we've just assumed hardening means taking away free will. But there's nothing in that passage that explicitly says that. We've jumped to that conclusion given our assumptions about God's power and creaturely freedom. So there are many 
professional, established, prominent biblical scholars today who say that God hardening Pharaoh's heart does not mean God took away his free will. That, see that I'm going to be honest with you because I want to believe that right, but what I think about is yeah. okay if someone if someone causes someone else's heart to be hardened, God is ca- he's the cause of, of that right. It wasn't that's that, that's how I think about it right. It's like okay, Pharaoh's yeah. just sitting there one day and God's like some voodoo magic and he's like you know what I changed my mind. You're not going to leave it. You know, you're <laughs> going to leave. That's how I picture it happening. But what you're saying yes. is that that's not really the case when you really kind of dig into it. Yeah, you know, you think about the way we talk about uh, causation in every laid language. Mm. So let's take, uh, well, let's take one of my favorite basketball players, LeBron James. Right. Suppose the Lakers are coming down to the end of regulation. They're down by a bucket. Everybody in the house knows the ball is going to LeBron. Right. LeBron takes it, does his patent and move, goes to the hoop, puts the ball in. The next day, the headline in the sports section says, LeBron James wins the game. Sounds like LeBron James was the cause of that game getting the win for the Lakers. Yeah. But if you really know basketball, it takes four other players, a coach. It takes all kinds of conditions. There's all kinds of factors, forces, and actors at play. So that saying LeBron won the game can be true without it meaning that LeBron was the only cause or the sufficient cause to use the philosophical language. So what's happened is people have gone to scripture and they've seen God did this, God did that, God did the other. And they've just assumed that God was the only one to make that happen. When there's lots of biblical evidence that creatures play a role in what goes on in the world as well. Well, that that tracks because I'm a big fan of the Bible Project. That's Tim Mackey, John Collins, and they they talk a lot about this theme in the Bible of of God wanting to partner with humanity to mm. to kind of co-rule, you know, over the earth together, right? This idea of of yes. human uh, impact and 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 God working to to make things happen. So in that context, I track with that. But in my evangelical heritage, and I'm just kind of putting this together now. But really, when I really critically examine it, I was just kind of taught like there's this there's this thing with no form, shape, or anything somewhere, you know, ha- that has like a magic wand of sorts, just kind of like, you know, throwing spells over people uh, to make them do certain things. And then I came out of a uh, a Calvinist tradition in, in the evangelical sense. So think James White or Paul Washer, that type of Calvinism, right? Of like, okay. no, you know, God has decreed uh, who's in and who's out before you were ever born. And it doesn't right. matter what you do because you're either in or you're out because God is sovereign. And, you know, Romans 9, who are you, oh man, uh, to, to, to question him? So that's kind of the, the, the framework I was given of God from a very uh, from a very early ch- you know point in my life but as i've been kind of listening and trying to examine and you know listening to other scholars of the bible there seems to be other themes in these scriptures that maybe make a little more sense and make the bible seem a little less all over the place when it comes to to <laughs> to, to, to some of these themes does that make sense yeah yeah and i like the way you twice said makes sense mm. because um what happens if you start off with a classic Calvinist view of God who predestines all things from all eternity, decrees who's going to heaven, who's going to hell, all that sort of stuff? Right. Then you start asking these questions like, why, why would God send some people to hell if God can unilaterally decree things? Or why, if this God can unilaterally determine things in the world, why does this God prevent the Holocaust or the pandemic? 
Right. And so you start asking these questions because things don't make sense from that perspective. Right. And then typically what people do is they kind of start sprinkling in a little human free will. They'll say, like you said about the Bible project, that God's looking for partners, those sorts of things. And that will bring them a long way toward kind of making sense of things. Yeah. But they usually still want to hold on to that omnipotence somewhere in the background. Yeah. And so you know, I don't know the Bible project that well, but I suspect they'll say something like, God is inviting you to partner in what God's doing in the world. Yeah. And I will go one step further and I'll say, God needs you to partner. Otherwise, the future won't be the kind of loving future God wants. In other words, I don't think God can get the job done without you and me. And that's taking another step beyond the kind of omnipotent God to a God who actually has needs. Well, you know, Tom, if I ever want to, to do a clickbait section on this, I'll just take that <laughs> clip, add a context, throw it on Instagram, and let it fly. So there you go. Thank you for that. But okay, we 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 need to park here for a minute because again, my okay. my evangelical sensibilities are just like, wait a second. I'm, I'm sorry. Are you saying God needs, like not not wants or not invites, but without humans? This this goal of heaven on earth, or whatever you want to phrase it, a new earth, doesn't actually happen. What that tells me in my framework or that I grew up in is, okay, so God's not all-powerful. Uh, the universe ultimately is out of control because humans have only proven to be terrible in, in, in that journey in so many different ways. And uh, my whole framework of, of, of certainty of, of, well, I can hang on the truth of God's objective word that at the end, God wins no matter what happens. That's just out the window. And frankly, it's in the shitter. I mean, you just bust the toilet on it. So, 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 okay. So, so give me some more here. I mean, I got the spoonful, but yeah. give me, give me some meat, break that down for us. Well, maybe we could approach it like this. Let's ask ourselves the question, which is better, solitary power that can control or cooperation that requires collaboration? Hmm. Now, it might not be an easy answer or easy question to answer unless I add one more thing. Okay. Is love the most important thing going? If you start with love, I think you're going to side toward the cooperation view of power rather than the solitary domination view of power. Um, If I love my partner, I'm not going to manipulate them. I'm going to listen. I'm going to collaborate. If I love my partner, I'm not going to go it alone. We're in it together. And so there's this kind of need that comes from love. So if you start with love, needing doesn't sound so weird. But if you start with solitary, you know, omnipotence, then need sounds way out of whack. Okay. Um, are you cool if I keep playing devil's advocate here? Because this is really helpful yes, for yes, me. Yes, let's do it. And I'm sure yeah. you've heard all these objections, but I, it helps me process. So I, I would imagine if you're talking to you know some megachurch pastor who doesn't like you, right? They're okay. All right, Tom, that sounds nice. But, you know, God is perfect. God is self-sustaining. God doesn't need humanity to exist because he existed outside of humanity, right? I mean, so what do you, like, what are some of those responses when, when those kinds of objections might come up? Yeah. So there's two senses of need here. Mm. 
One sense of need is the question, does God need creation in order for God to exist? Now, that question, I go with most uh, classical theists. I think God exists necessarily. God is everlastingly existing, and God doesn't require anything outside of God's self to support God's existence. The next question is, does God need creatures to um, fulfill the goals God has in mind? Well, in that sense, I think God's goals are love, and love is not controlling, so then I can say, yes, God has those kinds of needs. So there's two different kinds of needs things going on here. Okay, yeah, that that again, very helpful because it is interesting. Like, and this is a minor side note, but I think it ties into this. I think a lot of people have realized that, like, the framework that we grew up with, although um, maybe is problematic, is really effective when you're inside of it. Like, there's an answer for everything that kind of brings you back to whatever that view is, right? But as you just demonstrated, like, well, there's there's always questions even underneath or, or assumptions underneath of those questions. And and two things can be true at the same time where, yes, God is self-sufficient, but the way that the world is set up, or everyone to phrase it, it, it needs humanity to actually happen with how we are. I mean, I'm kind of butchering it, but is that kind of the idea of what you're saying? Yeah, that's kind of the idea. Yeah. I think there's another sort of, this is going to sound a little nerdy here for a second. Go but, for um, it. We love it. <laughs> um, in, in philosophy, we sometimes differentiate between deductive logic and inductive logic or abductive logic. Deductive logic starts with these truths and then deduces, sort of lays out all the implications. So if you start with a God who's omnipotent, who predestined everything from all of reality, well, then you just sort of lay out all the implications. Well, that means there's no real freedom. It means that God decides, you know, maybe God decides everybody goes to heaven, maybe a universalist, or maybe God decides some go to hell and some go to heaven, but still everything is God and things can fit together really nicely. The problem with that, however, is that that's not the world we live in. We live in a world in which we think we have real free choices. We live in a, we have a sense of morality in which we think sending people to hell for eternity doesn't fit the crime of how many sins they did in a lifetime, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So what the inductive logic does is it says, okay, when we're making a case for something, we have to take in all of the information we have, which includes our experience, which includes scripture and the diversity of scripture, which includes our reason, but science, et cetera. And then you build up a case for what you think makes the most sense. I'm doing theology in that second mode, but I'm privileging the issues of love. I'm privileging love in God and God's desire that we love. And that leads me to a very different kind of theology than what most people have heard of. So how do you define love, right? That's a very, uh, you know, we have really have one word in the English language. You know, I love pizza. I love my wife can mean very different things. Same word. Um, in in this case, how are you defining the love of God, or or or, or love being at being privileged in in this theological framework? Yeah, I've written a book with the boring title "Defining Love," so it's something I've thought a lot about. <laughs> Fair. So here's here's my fast and easy definition for you. Okay, this. cool. To love is to act intentionally. In relational response to God and others to promote overall well-being. 
So it's an intentional action, it's in relationship, and its aim is well-being. Now, that may, I'm guessing that probably won't sound weird to most people listening, but actually you're right. Very few people offer a definition of love. And then what most theologians do is they define God's love as so different from our love that it doesn't make any sense. You know, our love is relational, but for most theologians, God is not relational. Our love includes emotions, but for most theologians, God doesn't have any emotions in response to creation. Our love is flowing through time, but for most theologies, God is timeless, et cetera, et cetera. So I've got a definition of love that applies both to God and to creatures. Yeah, that's helpful because you're right. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not one to name names in conversations like this, but there are just people in our community know that there are people that we highlight and we're like, this is a really weird view of love where, you know, like maybe, uh, you know, the old adage, you know, uh, we, we hate the sin. We love the sinner. You know, it's like, well, that's a really weird thing because it has a lot of, it leads to a lot of harm. Um, towards a lot of people. And then what they'll say is, well, the most loving thing to do is to say this. And it's like, whoa, whoa, this feels so inverted. In fact, I will say Doug Wilson recently did a thing with Canon Press where he pretty much said, you know, to to the world's ears, our love sounds like hate, but that's just God's standard of love pretty much. And you're like, <laughs> actually, maybe you're just being hateful here, right? And so, and so I think a lot of people kind of see through that, but there is like this, this, this Christian world that I existed in for a lot of years that kind of tried to putting it politely, maybe indoctrinate or brainwash me to thinking like, no, 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 this idea of rejecting the rights of certain people groups or, 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 or privileging the rights of others is actually the most Christ-like thing that we can do. And then when I'd say, well, Christ says that we should bring liberation to the oppressed to go, well, that's Marxism. So that doesn't count, but a spiritual <laughs> oppression, you know, and it's like, okay, yes. but you're always like, everything's always changing to fit this, this particular worldview. So I, I do appreciate you saying that because I think a lot of us have seen through that, but don't know better ways forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll put a very personal example on the table right now that's going on in my own life. Mm. Right now, I'm a part of, the, of a denomination that is not fully LGBTQ plus affirming, and I'm trying to get the denomination to change its views. And one of my arguments is that is that it's a matter of love. But my opponents, they use the love word too, but for them, that means going through therapy, you know, gay therapy or whatever. Yeah. Um, we both use the love word, but our understanding of what that means radi- uh, differs radically. Yeah. And also the implications of, of, of what yes, that means right. too, right? So but let me make yeah, it oh God, yeah, oh, no, no, let no. me make it even more uncomfortable for your listeners here. Right, right? thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We've blown away all the normal categories. Let's just keep going, you know. <laughs> uh, okay. Most evangelicals I know, at least those in the more Arminian branch of things, Pentecostals, yeah. they'll say God doesn't cause evil. God allows it or permits it. Yes. And when they do that, they seem to be taking the pressure off the problem of evil. They seem to be saying, look, God's a loving God. The evil in the world, well, that's because humans did it or creatures did that or that's because of the natural laws or free will or sin or whatever. They're saying God is always the loving one. God never causes evil, but God permits it. Now, suppose... Some summer afternoon, I'm in my backyard here in Idaho, 
and there's some little kids. Well, let's make it my daughters swimming in the creek that runs behind my house. And suppose my oldest daughter got angry with my youngest, took her head, put it underwater, and is trying to drown her, trying to kill her. Now, suppose I'm close enough, I could intervene, I could walk out into the water and rescue my youngest daughter. But suppose I say, you know, I'm not causing this drowning. I think I'll just allow it. I'll permit it. Nobody in my neighborhood would think I'm such a loving father. My wife wouldn't say, you know, good good choice there, Tom, letting your kids kill each other. Thumbs up on you. You're such a loving guy. And yet most evangelicals, not just evangelicals, most Christians I know say that somehow, in some mysterious way, it's loving for God to permit rape, murder, torture, pandemics, yada, yada, yada. I'm saying if we're going to take love seriously, and love for us is like love for God, then we also have to rethink God's power when it comes to evil. Okay, I was actually gonna. That was my next question. So I'm glad we're here Good. because because <laughs> frankly, there are that that's the perspective that I think a lot of us have heard. I grew up in a, in a tradition that said no, like you know, because God decreed that you know rape. I mean that that's a real thing. James White is on the record of saying this. This is not like a secret for people, but like there are Calvinists out there who say God decrees those things for His glory, ultimately for God's yep. glory. I mean, John, um, John Piper wrote a book about the pandemic saying that that essentially this is god's decreed will that the pandemic happens right meanwhile yep. i've known people who have almost lost their lives during it and then when you and i i, I don't want to sound overly simplistic but when you use basic common sense about the human experience and you go well if i had that kind of power and i you know like you said allowed my kids to kill themselves uh, kill each other no one would say, well, you are all, you were the powerful one here and you know your ways are higher than my ways and uh, we should still you know <laughs> adore your decision making. We go, what the <laughs> hell were you thinking? And we have a whole process that would probably put me in jail, right? But when you say yep. that, the line is, well, God's ways are not our ways, right? His ways are higher yep. than ours. But but then I think, and this is just me, then I think, well, listen, if, if we are just like the ant, and God is, you know, is God. And I think that's unjust. How much worse must it be for God? <laughs> like, like if my standard is, is there, like, yes, this is a bad idea if you're all in control, then I would assume God's ways are better. Like they're more loving than my ways. So, so yep. how does your... Well, what John Piper yeah. would say to you is he would say two things. One, you just can't understand the mind of God because right. you're the, the ant. But right. secondly, you'd say you're a sorry sinner. And it's your sin that prevents you from understanding God's true love. Yes. But both those answers are just undermining the reasoning of the one doing it. And they apply to Piper as well. So, yeah, I won't yeah. go into the technical <laughs> details here, but it's it's a matter of uh, um, an inconsistency within the record itself. Spring is basically a second holiday season. Mother's Day, Father's Day, weddings, the list goes on. And what better way to celebrate them than with Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly is the easiest way to shop local stores and compare prices on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered to your door. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. 
Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. So how does open and relational theology approach the problem of evil then? Because it's obviously a major problem. I mean, we, we it's discussed in, in thousands of different ways. In, in this framework, how is evil addressed? Well, open and relational theology is a, an umbrella under which there's lots of different options. And instead okay. of answering for everybody in open and relational, I'm just going to answer for myself. Right. And I'm going to go right to the jugular. Let's go. God can't single-handedly prevent evil. God can't single-handedly stop pandemics, torture, sexual abuse, murder. God can't. Now, I'm emphasizing the can't because I grew up in a tradition in which people would say God won't. Right. And the won't sounds like God could, but is choosing not to. I got a letter from a woman who read my book called God Can't, and she's talked about how she'd been sexually abused by her brother when she was younger. She said she had this dream during this abuse, and in the dream, Jesus walked up to her and held her hand while she was being molested. She said for a couple of days, she felt good because Jesus was with her, and then she got pissed because Jesus was with her and didn't stop it. That's the God won't position. God could, but chooses not to. I'm saying God can't, because I'm saying it's metaphysically impossible for God to single-handedly prevent any evil. I know that's going to sound like a weakling God to a lot of your listeners, (laughs) but that's the way you overcome this question of evil. And you don't have to say God allows it. All right, audience. So sit with that for a minute. Hit the pause button if you need to. Take a breather, okay? Um, because I, I am processing this you know, in the moment, Tom, um, as you're talking, yeah. because I – in okay, so on one hand, I'm like, you know, that actually makes a lot of sense of why there is such atrocity, right? Because yeah. like maybe God just can't stop this these things that we see that we're like what the hell is happening on the other hand then then i'm like well what's the point of god being god if he's no stronger than a what 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 one human can or can't do and isn't that kind of reflecting our own self into like this i don't know metaphysical idea of what we call god so can you help me break down like then then what actually is God just love? Is it just the idea of love is God? Is there a being behind some of this stuff? Like, how do you, how does that work in, 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 in your framework? I don't think God can control anyone or anything because God loves everyone and everything. Hmm. But I do think God is the most powerful. So God is far more powerful than you or me or any group or any nation. And God's power is immense because God is omnipresent and God is influencing absolutely everything from the smallest cork to the largest universe at all times and all places, always in an uncontrolling way. So never controlling at any time or any place. But this omnipresent, omni-influential God is present throughout all of creation. Now, that still might not sound strong enough for some people. (laughs) They still want a God who can control. And to those people, I say, okay, if you're going to go that direction, you're not going to solve the problem of evil. 
You're right. not going to solve the questions of biblical inerrancy. You're not going to solve the question, all kinds of, I could just go down the line. Sure. If you want a consistent theology, I think you need to make this step, but you don't have to end up having a God who is an impotent God up on Mars, eating popcorn, doing nothing. You still have a powerful God. Is there a um, like desire that God has versus what God can or can't do? So like, does God not want evil to be happening and does and ultimately wants to reconcile all things at one point, but just yes, can't do sure. it? Is that how it kind of can you break that can you yeah. Guys, yeah parse that out for us? So God does have desires. God desires the well being of you and me, every human and all of creation. And God's working constantly. The word I like to use is relentlessly to bring that into fruition, that overall well being would be established. But God needs cooperation. God can't do it. And the word I've been using over and over is can't do it single-handedly. Because I want to emphasize that God is really acting all the time powerfully, but requires our response. My favorite illustration of this is uh, what happened in my life. What is that? Let me do my math really quickly. 34 years ago, I'm in a restaurant with my girlfriend. I reach into my pocket. I pull out the ring. I say, will you marry me? I acted. That was me doing that. But in order for us to be engaged, she had to say, yes, I do. It requires cooperation for love to flourish. And I'm saying if we start with love in God, that means we need cooperation. God needs cooperation from us. Okay, so now let's bring this back to the to the age old evangelical question. Well, what's the Bible say about God and evil? So, so what yeah. are some of like you know the, I don't know biblical positions or arguments that you found that maybe support or or contradict your position? Like, how does that work for you? The Bible has lots of thing lots of things to say about evil. Hmm. None of them give us a really clear uh, solution. Yeah. I think you can build a solution from various aspects of scripture, but I'm not saying that, you know, you can find my answer in Hezekiah 3.12 and <laughs> nobody else has ever seen it. In the original like Hebrew, you're just missing the <laughs> right, right word there. You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bart Ehrman, who I'm guessing many of your listeners have yes. heard of, is a former evangelical, now yep. atheist. He wrote a book called God's Problem, in which he goes through scripture and looks at all the answers to the problem of evil and finds all of them wanting. Um, the answer that I give is not explicitly in scripture, but I think you can build that argument from scripture, taking you know uh, things about God's love and creaturely freedom, etc., but it's not there explicitly. Well, I actually appreciate you saying that because I, I think— one of the things that we are trying to do is trying to renegotiate our relationship to the Bible, right? From like yeah. this idea that it's just a rule book and then and then the proof text game of, okay, here it is in English, black and white. The Bible's clear. God said it. That settles it. To realizing like the Bible is a very complicated collection of books with an even more complicated yes. history written in a culture that is completely foreign to us. I mean, John Walton says, you know, the Bible was written for us, but not to us, right? This idea that like, right. there's a lot of work to do when we try and understand the world of the Bible. And I, I actually appreciate that in a lot of ways, Tom, because I, I don't think, I think about for me, the Western uh, quadrilateral is kind of like the framework yeah. I think about these days, you know, where it's like, can the Bible 
be really helpful as far as giving us things to think about and even wisdom to gleam about about yeah. how God might operate in the world. Absolutely. But also, it's a very human book. And that's not that's not controversial to say. Many people, even conservative <laughs> scholars, will say, yes, I mean, humans wrote the book, okay? It didn't come down from heaven above. So I think it's important that, that people understand that, like, it's okay to have positions that maybe you don't have a proof text for just to prove that God absolutely said it. Because that is such a finite view of thinking about God that that really falls apart once you get beyond how the Bible was constructed. You know, I mean, how did God relate to the yes. world before that? You know what I mean? So I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, well, let me let me suggest that since in that same spirit then, yeah. let me suggest a kind of hermeneutical principle that I use when I think about Scripture. Go for it. Um, my principle is this. We should take the main themes, the broad, um, the broad tropes, the the primary message. Obviously, there's going to be some differences in opinion and how you work that out. But uh, for me, I think the main themes of Scripture revolve around a God of love. I think we see that most clear in Jesus of Nazareth. I think you find in the Old and New Testament, but. There are plenty of passages that portray God as unloving. Now, what do you do with those? If the right. majority portray a God of forgiveness and love, but there's some that don't, what do you do with those? Well, when I was a younger evangelical, I'd kind of look at those, cock my head sideways, squint, and say, well, you know, maybe in the <laughs> divine perspective, right. you know, bashing babies' heads against rocks, that might somehow be loving in God's perspective. Right. Today, I just say, no, the biblical writers sometimes get God wrong, dead wrong. Now, I don't say that because I think I'm smarter than absolutely everybody, or I'm a 21st century postmodern theologian who's finally arrived at all the answers. Right. I say that based on the preponderance of the biblical witness that portrays God as not in the business of bashing babies' heads against rocks or asking for genocide, etc. So I don't think we have to throw the Bible out. But I think we need to be honest with the text we actually have and admit that you can't bring it together in a nice systematic theology where everything fits together. I have to agree. And not to mention there are, you know, I, I've heard some great perspectives from, from Jewish theologians and others who are like, listen, some of this language is war language from an oppressed group. And, you know, there's evidence that it wasn't, you know, it was more about the the, the imagery it's painting than actually happening. And that, again, I, I'm not saying that like uh, solves all the problems, but it helps just to bring some context to, okay, yeah, if yeah. this is a marginalized people group being conquered by everyone, you know, and they're crying out to their God, you know, out, out of this, like, okay, I, do something, you know, and that's the imagery here. Not pretty imagery, but also maybe not a literal, like, please God, kill every single infant on the face of the planet. You know what I mean? So sure. so there are ways of, of looking at the text, I think, help just make, again, more sense of these things. But I agree with you, Tom. Like, I, I, I we often talk about in our in our little community of like this idea, and Scott McKnight talks about this in his book, The Blue Parakeet, where you know every generation of Christians is kind of charged with the task of of taking the Christian tradition and applying it in their day and their way. That's kind of how he talks about it. And he talks about like we're really sitting on this big tradition with a lot of wisdom, and some of the, and some of that stuff needs to help us make wise decisions today that help us make wise decisions in the future, right? But some things yep. we know, like okay, maybe sin is not 
not pass through semen, like what Augustine says. You know, like maybe, right, maybe right. and that's okay. <laughs> like maybe Augustine was wrong there. Not the end of the world. Can we still learn something from Augustine for sure? But we we all have to make these decisions of what we're gonna get, of what we're gonna take forward and what we're not. And that's just part of the human experience. And the biblical authors are not exempt from that. But I also agree with you where. I have met people, some people in progressive spaces, who have this perspective of like, oh, they're just idiot authors who were just cavemen back then <laughs> who know nothing about the world, and us, you know, yeah. 21st century enlightened folks. And that kind of, um, you know, pride, I think, lends to another type of fundamentalism that is not very humble in its approach. It sure can. You know? Yeah. It sure can. I agree. Yeah. Okay, so let's bring let's I know we, we touched on a lot of things and I, I think I have a decent snapshot of what we're operating in. I, I want to kind of bring us a little out now and, and more into our cultural moment, right? So we live in America, we're in 2023. There is this um and it's it's a very broad term, you know, granted, but there is this evangelical culture that really dominates a lot of the theologies that are popular, uh, that that dominates the perspectives of God that are popular, that, that dominates the political perspectives that are popular, that really affect how non-Christians view the Christian tradition and how a lot of people who are Christians are shaped, right? Um, what do you think, going forward, as we kind of keep moving on, I do feel like there's this kind of... Um, there's like a spirit in the air of just like, okay, this evangelical thing maybe isn't as healthy as I thought. I want to renegotiate things. What does it look like for you in your work? Like, do you get a lot of, of like evangelicals who are like, hey, I grew up in this space. I just need better answers to the problem of evil or God. Or do you find that your work really resonates more inside of the open and relational, you know, kind of bubble? Or is it both? It's both. But a lot of my readers are evangelical or ex-evangelical yeah. um, who care a lot about the Bible who think it makes sense to believe there's a God. They're just not quite sure what that God is like that uh, think there's, you know, <laughs> they're, they're like me. They think there's something about love that matters. Um, and so they're trying to make sense of the world in which we live. And what I try to do is I try to give detail to what love looks like. I try to overcome or answer the questions they have about scripture or science, you know, um, theology, etc. Um, so in this particular moment, yeah. because of the Trump phenomenon and because of the ultra-right, there are a lot of evangelicals who are asking hard questions of what it means to be an evangelical and whether or not they want to keep that <laughs> label. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's arguments pro and, and con. Um, I... I think if you're going to be evangelical, well, I'll just speak for myself. If sure. I use that language of evangelical for myself, I want to say it has something to do with the good news of God's love. That's evangelical as I think about it. Now, the implications of love then are going to lead me away from an emphasis on, let's say, the military or increasing military might. Um, I'm not against the military per se. I'm just saying uh, I'm probably going to, because of my love agenda, I'm not going to put all the stress on having being the world's greatest power and having all that authority. So that's just one way to illustrate if you keep love first, it's going to affect your social policies, how you think about candidates and um, the way you want to get along in the world. Uh, you know, um, I'm not... Uh no lie, um, people ask me often, why the name New Evangelicals? Like, why are you keeping evangelicalism in the name? And yeah. I tell people, I said, listen, at its root, 
evangelical means someone who brings good news. I don't think we have good news to bring anymore. And we have to bring good news back, you know, like in that, and, and, yeah. and I kind of tie it back to that, right. Of like, is there good news that at the center of the universe is an ever expanding love of God that you can participate in yeah. here and now for the good of all humanity. That's good news. You know? So yeah. certainly we yeah. have some good news to bring, even though it looks so different than what a lot of us assume when we hear the term evangelical. Um, I wanted to ask you as we, you know, kind of start landing this plan a little bit. How does open relational theology deal with with like other faiths, other religions, right? Um, yeah. Again, an, another big sticking point that I was always told was like, listen, if you don't believe, you know, that that Christ is the only way in the evangelical Christian sense, you're just not a real Christian, and like you're just out. How does open and relational theology deal with other faiths in the world? Well, first of all, I should say that you can be a Muslim open and relational theologian mm. or a Jewish open and relational theologian, Baha'i. Uh, so there's a, a lot of uh, theological traditions. If being open and relational is affirming a, a God who's open and relational, that can then play out in a variety of different ways. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so open and relational theologians um, are going to want to avoid two extremes. One extreme says, our view is the only way, it's obviously right, everybody else is going to hell. But we're also going to avoid the extreme that says, hey, one view is just as good as another. So this kind of extreme relativism. Yeah. Open and relational folks are going to appreciate the classic uh, religious traditions and the wisdom that's fine there. They're typically not going to pretend like they're all saying the same thing. You know, like all the religions are climbing up the same mountain. They're usually going to say they're really doing some different things, but there's wisdom in that difference as well. But most open and relational folks are going to say, most are Christian. Most are going to say, you know, there's just something about this Christian vision and this guy, Jesus, that captures me. And while I'm not opposed to my Muslim friends or my Jewish friends or whatever, um, I really find this Jesus guy uh, compelling. And that's why I'm a a follower of him. So, um, okay, so what... From your perspective, with the work that you do, um, what is okay? Let's put it in an evangelical sense, okay? Okay, <laughs> and you can blow it out of the water. But what cool. what what makes God say to someone, "Well done, good and faithful servant"? Like, what is the optimal job well done in life? You lived a good life in this system. What does open relational theology say about that going into you know in, in, into death? In terms of the afterlife, or well, just as in terms in of like, general, like, like okay, so an evangelical would say, "Listen, we want to save souls. You know, if you if you read oh, the Bible, gotcha. attend our church, and save souls, at the end of the day, like job well done." What is the goal of the, of the Christian in the in the Christian open and relational theological sense? Yeah, I mean, the, I'm going to sound like a stuck record, but I think most open and relational folks would say something about the primacy of love, that God cares most that we love one another. And that's what God privileges, Uh, that salvation ultimately is not avoiding hell. Most of us don't believe in hell anyway. um, Salvation is ultimately about living a life of love and encouraging others to do the same, loving God, loving others, loving ourselves, loving creation. That is what it means to say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
Okay, last question for you. Let's just go big or go home. All right. So let's tee it up uh, here. Okay, so I love it. so let's talk about the afterlife, right? Because Okay, great. Um, you know, again, I'm just evangelical framework, heaven or hell, which I think even heavens is a bad word. I mean, NT Wright would agree with you on this, you know, like heaven hell is not a, is the end game though. Um, and ultimately God uh is the one who will either destroy the world and make a new one, um, or he'll reconcile all things to himself. But ultimately, God's the one who we're just waiting for this moment to happen where God's like, all right, enough human evil. Everyone who I want to be saved is predestined to be saved. It's done. I can hit the, you know, the, the big red button of like, it's done. How does open yeah. relational theology view the afterlife and ultimately this concept that I think is a theme in the Bible of the restoration of all things, a, a, a new heavens and new earth, so to speak? Yeah. Um, let me answer that by looking at four models or theories of the afterlife. Right. Model number one, heaven and hell in the traditional sense. I don't know of any open and relational thinker who believes in the heaven and hell in the traditional sense of God sending some people to eternal conscious torment. Um, it's probably possible, but I, I just don't know anybody who has that view. Sure. Second option, universalism. Everybody goes to the good place. There are some open and relational folks who are in that camp. I myself am not, at least in what I call a classic universalist sense, because classic universalism, in which you find from like Karl Barth or David Bentley Hart, yes. that requires a certain view of omnipotence. And I don't think God is omnipotent. So the problem with classical universalism is if God has the kind of power to make sure everybody goes to the good place after they die, then why doesn't God use that kind of power to make sure he stopped evil right here and right now? Yeah. Um, and so that's a big problem, I think. A third option, annihilationism. This is the option that God doesn't send anybody to hell, but God annihilates some either actively by burning them up or passively by not resurrecting them. In my way of thinking, that means God gives up on some people. And if you're an open and relational person who doesn't think God knows the future with certainty, God doesn't know whether or not things are going to change in the future. So uh, having a God who gives up just doesn't fit with my view of God uh, as love or God as not knowing the future. So the fourth model, the one that I advocate, I call relentless love. It says that God always calls us to lives of love in this life and the next. And God never, ever, ever gives up on anyone or anything capable of responding. I'm, I'm open to animals and all kinds of other things being in heaven. God, however, never forces anyone to heaven. And that means we can continue to say no to God in the afterlife. And whenever we say no to love in this life or the next, there are natural negative consequences that come from that. God doesn't punish us in the sense of, okay, Tim, you said no to me. I'm going to make you pay. It's there are natural negative consequences of saying no to God's love. And we can say no in the afterlife, but God never gives up. And because God's love is relentless, my theory has the hope that everyone will ultimately be reconciled to God. Not because God overpowered them and coerced them, but because God's love lured them, wooed them, persuaded them to live a life of love everlastingly. 
That's the vision I find most hopeful. I'm being uh, triggered to my Rob Bell Love Wednesdays and thinking about that one chapter <laughs> in hell, where essentially it's what he says. I mean, he says, "Can does God get what God wants? You know, and the idea is like if God desires it, at some point will the never-ending love of God, even in the afterlife, although he puts it in a very Rob Bell way, you know, win people yeah. over essentially, right? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, first off, thank you for kind of breaking down those four different views. I think that's really helpful for our audience because hell is a, a, such a big topic uh, in our community because again so many of us at very young ages were just sat in front of a fire and told hey yeah, if you don't pray too. this prayer like this is just what, what this is what happens objectively right i like no yep. answers for buts and only Chris, only true christians believe this so it is helpful to have you know people like yourself who are just so so knowledgeable kind of help us think about this in better ways that again make more sense with the character and nature of God, assuming that love is at the center of all this, right? Then how does that right. get fleshed out in our reality? And then I think about as people who are made in the Imago Dei, the image of God, how do we be conduits of that love to each other to hopefully bring about a more peaceful, loving, you know, inclusive world for the sake of all of our neighbors? I think that that's just a really beautiful way of thinking about the planet. Um, so yeah, that's really cool. Um, it, you know, it, it changes the way, if you have my view that God yeah. never gives up on anybody, um, it changes the way you respond to lots of things. For instance, uh, just before the pandemic, I was speaking in uh, North Carolina, and I did this lecture on my view of the afterlife. And this woman come up to me and she said, oh, thank you so much for that presentation. She said, my son has had mental health issues since he was a kid, and he could not believe that a loving God would do this to him. And last year, he, he committed suicide. She said, in your model, he has second chances. In the afterlife, God never gives up on him. Even though he never believed in God in this life and killed himself, if your view is correct, God is lovingly inviting, not forcing, lovingly inviting him in the afterlife. Or another advantage. I told you earlier that I was a big-time evangelist when I was younger. Yes, a street preacher was, was the word you yeah, used. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I was involved with Cabot's Crusade for Christ for a while. Um, and my motivation was, hey, I wanted to keep people out of hell. So they need to say the sinner's prayer. Um, with my view now, believing that God doesn't give up in the afterlife, the pressure is not on me to always convince people they need to say yes to Jesus because I do want to present the gospel of love, but I believe God's got, is still going to give them chances in an afterlife. And that really um, it, it makes makes living the witness of love easier, less stressful. <laughs> I don't think people's eternal destiny is is, is uh, riding on my shoulders. I have to agree. And I think once you lose that that like necessity of, oh, saving souls from burning in hell forever, you start looking around at the actual physical world and realizing how much work there is to do right here and now. Great point. You know, Great um, point. That, that is just needed. Um, and I, I think that that is so key for so many people who go, wait a second, you're telling me that like in your view, the most important thing is not that this person has clothes or affordable health care, whatever it might be, you know, just being taken care of, yeah. but that their soul one day doesn't burn in hell forever. Like that's that, help me understand that 
You know, especially once you realize, like you said, how even debated this idea of hell it really is, even in the Christian tradition. And I mean, Bart Ehrman's book, Heaven and Hell, is a great read on this, kind of the history of how hell has formed, you know. So anyway, um, yeah. yeah, that's that's great. Well, there's – sorry, can I – we're extending oh, this yes, a little bit extend. further here. Let's go. I love it. You know, I lived with this um, contradiction as an evangelist. Hmm. On the one hand, I felt like God was commanding me to try to save souls from the pits of hell. And so I felt this burden. On the other hand, I believe God was omnipotent and loving. So God could just up and save everybody if God really wanted to. And if God was truly loving, then why wouldn't God do that? And so on the days in which I thought it was all on my shoulders, it was like a burden. Like, uh, you know, if I don't do this, Jimmy's going to go to hell forever. Right. On the other days, it was like, does my life even matter? Like, if God is omnipotent and God can do whatever, then why should I give a rip? You know, totally. things are going to work out whatever God wants to. Totally. Today, because I don't believe in omnipotence anymore, I think my choices really do matter. But it's not a matter of me trying to save people from eternal hell. (laughs) It's a matter of me choosing moment by moment to live a life of love that benefits me, others, creation, and God. And that's just a far more beautiful perspective as I see it. I I have to agree. I mean, listen, I I was taught that God predestined everyone, yet I have to preach the gospel. And then when I'd say, well, why does it matter if it's all been said? They go, oh, you don't understand this, do you? You don't understand Calvinism. I'm like, guys, I grew up in it. I mean, even today, sometimes sometimes I'll, I'll kind of poke the bear respectfully, but I'll poke the bear like 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 I don't yeah. want I don't want you know a Calvinist telling me how you know it's all predestined and somehow God's not playing both sides of the board and also God's not responsible for sin, but He also decreed sin, but also He's not responsible for it, and also I have to preach the gospel, but also whoever's going to get saved will get saved. I mean, but then I'm. <laughs> just renting but i'm the crazy one for some reason because i'm like this makes no no sense at all uh you know and then and then all of a sudden you find yourself on the outskirts because you you can't reconcile what is obviously a lot of contradictions um you know and it is um i mean listen my my brother he's not a believer um and we grew up and you know our parents are good people for sure but you know they they did the best with the information that they had so i don't fault them for this but we could screw up very calvinist that my dad was was a Calvinist, you know? And I remember driving with my brother, we're very close, and he was just saying like, listen, I'm not a Christian, so I guess God just didn't like predestine me to, to go to heaven pretty much. That was his <laughs> big point. And I remember thinking yeah. like, you know, if that's true, I have a problem with that. You know, like I right, have a real right. issue with, with the fact, with the idea of my brother being tortured alive forever uh, because God decreed that he just wouldn't be in, but God is just and holy, so praise him in heaven while your brother's burning in hell forever. I mean, that was an honest thought I had. Yeah. of like, this makes no sense at all. Something has got to give. It just has to. And I, I think ultimately, Tom, for me, and I'm speaking broadly here, I know many people who still are in those camps are very, very nice, but but it, it tends to breed, like, like, like the fruit of that theology breeds, breeds a lot of like, harshness and, and and arrogance and and this perspective of just like you are a dumb moron because you don't see it this way and also yeah. we're going to fight like hell to make sure that you're a heretic in these circles because we're right it just it, it's not collaborative like you said earlier right there, there, there's yeah. no sense of like working together and wrestling through these things it's game set match 
and you're the loser and just and cope pretty much. And I, I can't deal with that anymore. It makes no sense. Good for you. Well, it sounds to me like you've made the decision that if God exists, God can't be in the predestining business. So whatever we mean by God is not a predestining. God in that Calvinist sense of predestination. Yeah. And I agree with that. Let me challenge you. No, and your listeners. you're not allowed. No challenges here, Tom. You know how this works. <laughs> uh, let me challenge you to say that just as it took you a while to reimagine a God who is not predestinarian, maybe you might reimagine a God who's not omnipotent. <laughs> maybe. Too far! <laughs> That's, no i i love that i mean listen we we the way that we phrase it is that part of the work that we do as, as a nonprofit organization is help people explore the rooms of the christian tradition you know and this room yeah. is really worth exploring and sitting in and wrestling through and some people might say this is the room i want to park in i i'm here and that's great. And frankly, I will tell you, full transparency with the audience, ever since meeting Trip, because Trip was the kind of my gateway into all of this, um, I, I got him okay. on a podcast uh, over a year ago, and we kind of became friends. But he was the one who kind of opened me up to this even idea of open relational theology and, and God, you know, this flashlight analogy that he uses. I remember thinking like, you know, this really does like, for me, solve the problem of evil. It helps make sense of it. Yeah, We're like, yeah, maybe God just like, can't stop it. <laughs> you know, and, and I mean, that, that has other questions for me, but, but there is something that I will say for me personally, I've resonated with that has given me a lot of pause to be thinking about that I'm still chewing on, but Good. there's a lot of things I find very attractive about this way of viewing the divine in our, in our role in the world, frankly. Good. I'm glad to hear it. And I wouldn't lie to you. I promise. I'm a truth teller. <laughs> Tom, um, it was it was awesome getting you on, having this discussion. I, I hope we get a chance to hang out in person again and talk more. You are a pretty prolific writer and you have a website. Why don't you plug? What's your newest book? Where can folks find you? Are you on social media? Plug all your stuff away. Well, maybe the two books I'll plug uh, uh, is a book called God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse, and Other Evils. That addresses the problem of evil question we talked about. And then the book simply titled Open and Relational Theology, which is also an introduction to these kinds of ideas. The book I'm currently writing has the audacious title, The Death of Omnipotence. And that should come out this spring. I, when that comes out, I hope folks can read that and give me some feedback. You're just going after um, all the sacred cows, and I love it. I absolutely love it. <laughs> well, I, if you want to make sense of me, you will go a long way if you, if you realize that my ultimate aim is to not only live a life of love, but think consistently from a loving framework. And that motivates me to take take down some sacred cows. <laughs> Get it. And are you online? Um, any social media accounts or anything like that? Sure. You know, I've got a personal account that's my full name, Thomas J. Ord. Uh, but I would recommend people check out the Center for Open and Relational Theology. It's the letter C, the number four, O-R-T dot com. 
Great. I'll make sure to put some of that stuff in the show notes. Tom, again, truly, uh, really a pleasure. A lot of fun talking to you. And um, I know for the audience and for myself, a lot of things for us to start pondering on. Little seeds have been planted, you know, and uh, and I'm looking forward to talking more and, and learning more from you. So thanks for making the time. Thank you, Tim. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Now that you've taken on that big job, you shouldn't have to settle for the big box. You've earned a trip to Northern Tool, and we're ready for the details. We know all about the little things that make the biggest difference. Maybe that's why they call us a problem solver's paradise. From pressure washers to power tools, pallet jacks to push carts, Northern Tool and Equipment carries the brands you depend on, like North Star, DeWalt, Milwaukee, and Strongway. We're made for this. Come see us in-store or shop online at northerntool.com.